I got an email during the week from a girl called Nada. Is she here? No, good. I'm tr- <laughs> this is the email. I'm trying to trace some of my ancestors. My grandmother was born in Dubbo. Her name was Gertrude Elise Greentree. Her first husband was John Baitup. After he died, they, she then married my grandfather, Nugget George Michael Leonard Lyons from Golgong, and so on. Now, if you can help out Nader, talk to me later. It seems that she's trying to trace back her family line, and she's putting out feelers to anyone and everyone from Dubbo. Anyone else get this email? Just me. Why is it me? <laughs> now, look, I know there's some people who have spent hours researching their descendants, and if that's you... Good on you. But personally, I hate family trees. They completely bore me at the risk of putting half the people in the room offside. In fact, when I was given this passage to preach on, I did actually wonder if it was some kind of a joke from Alan and Bryson when they said this is what I'm preaching on in January because I was on holidays when they put my name in for this passage. (laughs) It's bad enough reading it. Well done, Maxine, let alone preaching on it. When I first read it, the highlight for me was verse 26 to see that it had Yoda in it, because I am a Star Wars fan. (laughs) But I did a bit of digging around, and it's a different Yoda. (laughs) Now, this, though, is God's word, isn't it? And right back at the start of Luke, which we looked at in early December, Luke said that he has carefully put this account of Jesus' life together, family tree and all. And in fact, sometimes I talk to people who've been doing their family tree and tracing it back, and they're very excited to discover connections and things. Now, it turns out that this passage, as we dig around a little bit, including the genealogy, has some exciting things to teach us about Jesus and who he is. Over the last 11 weeks it's been, believe it or not, we've been working our way through Luke, and today's the last time in Luke before we go to Isaiah. Now, most of it, has been about Jesus' birth, hasn't it? Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and so on. We had one incident a couple of weeks ago where Jesus was 12, and now we skip forward to when Jesus is 30 years old. So Luke has covered the first 30 years of Jesus' life in under three chapters. The last three years of Jesus' life, he will take 21 chapters So things really slow down now. In other words, it's what Jesus does as an adult that Luke wants to focus in on. And what Jesus does as an adult begins in today's passage. Let's pick it up. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry as an adult. And it's a pretty spectacular beginning, isn't it? Heaven opens. The Spirit of God in a, in a visible form comes and lands on Jesus. In the Old Testament, you may remember when the Spirit came upon people like judges or kings, it set them apart for their role. The Spirit lands on Jesus, and that's not all. Heaven opens, there's this voice from heaven that says to Jesus, you are my son, the one I'm pleased with, the one I love. What wonderful words. 
They're the words of the perfect father to the perfect son. If you're a son, aren't they the words you'd like your father to say to you? I love you. I'm pleased with you. But here these words are not just about words of encouragement to Jesus. These words are old words. These words, if you've read the Old Testament, have a familiar ring to them. I have a dream. They are famous words. To be or not to be, those words have a familiar ring to them. You are my son. That's not the first time God has given this speech. This is the exact speech that God gave to another king back in Psalm 2. You may remember last year Bryson preached on Psalm 2. This morning we're going to look at two Old Testament passages that lie behind Luke 3. The first of them is Psalm 2. If you've got a Bible and it's got an Old Testament, turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a psalm about God's king. In Psalm 2, just as you look it up there, God has chosen his special king, but the people are not recognising God's king. They don't want him to be king. They want to do their own thing. Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That word anointed one there in Psalm 2 is the word Christ. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Christ. See, Christ isn't just Jesus' surname. It's not a swear word. Christ is the title for God's king. And in Psalm 2, people want to ignore God's king. They want to ignore his Christ. And so in the second half of Psalm 2, God takes a stand He thinks this is a great joke, puny little humans thinking they can stand up against God's king. So look at verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, a little name for Jerusalem, my holy hill. And then, in Psalm 2, we find the words from Jesus' baptism. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. In Psalm 2, when God says to his king, you are my son, that is the sign that this king is the person who God has set up as the ruler of the entire world. And as we read on in Psalm 2, we find out that this king is the person who will dash his enemies to pieces. Come back to Luke. Come back to Luke. The voice of God from heaven is saying to Jesus, you are my son. It's a quote from Psalm 2. It's true that Jesus is God's son, but he's also now the world-beating ruler who will crush his enemies to pieces. Now, in one sense, there's nothing new about that at all. Already, four or five times in Luke's gospel over the past few weeks, Jesus has been called the Christ or the king or the one who sits on the throne of David. We heard it from the angel. We heard it from Simeon. We heard it from John the Baptist. The news isn't new, but this time the warning comes from heaven. This time it's the voice of God himself. This is my son. No one can rival him. 
He's going to judge the world. You'd better be on the right side of this king. So before we read on any more this morning in Luke's Gospel, you need to ask yourself, have you been listening for the past 11 weeks? Do you realise that this Jesus we've been reading about is the king who God has appointed? And are you on the right side of this king? That's what David was talking about last week. If you reject the rule of King Jesus, the rest of Luke's gospel is bad news for you. But if you take refuge in Jesus, what you read on in the rest of Luke is good news. As I said, though, Jesus is God's king. That's old news. We've been hearing it for weeks. Luke's been telling us this from chapter 1. What's surprising, though, not, not that Jesus is king, but what he will do now that he's 30 as king. How will he rule? Well, Jesus begins by being baptised. Now, that's strange if you stop to think about it. What is baptism? We saw last week. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what baptism is. It's a public sign of repentance. When you're baptised, you're saying that you're a sinner and you want to turn back to God. And so sinners, guilty people here are lining up at the Jordan River to be baptised for the things that they've done wrong. Then, who joins the queue? Jesus. Verse 21, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. Now you don't have to understand a lot about baptism to realise this is a bit weird. Why is Jesus being baptised? Does he need to be washed of his sin? That might sort of sound a bit funny. Did Jesus sin? They're questions that this passage raises, and if we answer them too quickly, I think we might miss the weight of what's going on here. Let's not jump to conclusions too quickly. Let's read on. Jesus is baptised. The next thing is a genealogy. It's a very strange place for a genealogy. Matthew, in his gospel, puts it back at Jesus' birth, which is where you might expect it. That's not the only thing that's strange here. Luke has changed the order of things. What's happened at the end of the last chapter just before this genealogy? John's been put in prison, but now he he is baptising. In other words, Luke has changed the order of things. They're not chronological anymore. He's deliberately trying to put the baptism with the genealogy and then with what comes next, the temptation. So just hold that in the back of your head. Another strange thing, Matthew in his gospel, traces genealogy of Jesus all the way back to um, Abraham. Luke here goes all the way back to Adam. Another strange thing, Matthew traces genealogy back through Joseph as expected, but Luke's names are different between Joseph and David. The most likely explanation for that, and you can chat to me later, is that I think this genealogy is going through Mary's side. In other words, Matthew is tracing it through Joseph, through his kingly line. This is his flesh and blood genealogy through his mother. The hint for that, I think, is where he says he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. And look at this genealogy. Look how long it is. It goes on and on and on. Not just, to, uh, not just to David to show us that Jesus is 
the great descendant of David the king, not just to Abraham to show us that Jesus is a Jew, not even to Noah, but all the way back to Adam, who Luke reminds us was the first son of God. So the emphasis in Luke seems to be that Jesus has become one of us. He's a descendant of Adam, like us. And that's backed up by the fact that in the next chapter, Luke 4, Jesus is led out to be tempted, just like Adam was. And all the temptations in the next chapter are all about Jesus being the Son of God, which was just announced, the voice from heaven. In chapter 4, if you just want to glance over it, the first temptation from Satan, if you are the Son of God, if that voice is true that we just heard, you shouldn't have to go hungry. If you are the Son of God, you should have the authority of all the world. And the third temptation, if you are the Son of God, you should be protected from being hurt. Now, Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God, but Satan is saying to to him, if this, if you really are God's king, you don't need to stoop this low. If you really are the son of God, you deserve more. God's holding back on you. But just like the temptation to the first Adam, this is all a lie, and Jesus sees through it. Because we know, as we read on in Luke, that the way Jesus will win his victory is not through using his power for his own benefit. The way Jesus will win his victory is that having become a man like Adam and having been tempted, he will die. Not for his own sin, though, for the sin of his people. So that's the overview of what's happening here. Let's go back to Jesus' baptism. I said there was two Old Testament quotes behind the words at Jesus' baptism. The first, this is my son from Psalm 2. This is God's world-conquering king. The second allusion in the voice at Jesus' baptism is from Isaiah 42.1. Turn with me there if you'd like to. We're going to spend a bit of time in Isaiah over the next few weeks, so Bryson will be looking at this passage in time. Just want to dip into it very quickly this morning. Isaiah 42.1, look it up if you want to. It's in the bulletin if you want to look it up later. first half of the quote at Jesus' baptism was from Psalm 2 about Jesus being a powerful king. The second allusion is to Isaiah 42, where we find out this. This is God speaking. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'm pleased with the same word as Luke. I will put my spirit on him. It's just what happened in Luke. And he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, if Psalm 2 was about a powerful king who will crush people, Isaiah is about someone gentle who won't crush people at all. He'll get alongside people and help them. Now, this person in Isaiah... He is someone who will help Israel in their weakness by his own weakness. In fact, as we read on in Isaiah, by the time we get to Isaiah 53, we're told that this person who God puts his spirit on and who God delights in will go like a lamb to the slaughter. 
His life will be cut short. He'll be killed in the place of his people. He will suffer in the place of his people. It almost sounds like it's the opposite of the kind of person we're reading about in Psalm 2. Rather than crushing his enemies, this person will be crushed by his enemies. And yet, at Jesus' baptism, these words are spoken of Jesus. Jesus is both the conquering king of Psalm 2 and this strange, weak, mysterious figure of Isaiah who God will delight in, be pleased with, who God will put his spirit on and who will help weak Israel. And so Jesus' baptism is not just about him being king, it's about him identifying himself with sinful Israel. See, everyone else coming out to be baptised by John the Baptist on that day, they're being baptised because they're sinners. They need to be washed clean. They need to be baptised to be right with God. Jesus isn't being baptised because he's a sinner, is he? But he's somehow coming to identify himself with sinners. I know that's a bit hard to get your head around, but it's an idea that we need to get this morning because I think it's the main idea of this passage. As we read on in Luke, in Luke 12.50, Jesus talks about his baptism. He talks about, though, another baptism. In Luke 12.50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. So Jesus is baptised in Luke 3 with water, but he, Jesus is talking about another baptism that will have to happen to him. He's talking about his death. Somehow his baptism and his death are linked. In his death, Jesus will become sin. He will stand before God being judged like a sinner. And what's happening in Luke 3 at his baptism is somehow looking forward to that. Jesus wasn't baptised for his own sin. He won't die for his own sin. He was baptised with sinners alongside sinners. He will die in the place of sinners. In his death, he, he identifies with us, if you like, in his baptism, but in his death, he dies for us. Now, we kind of have ways of doing this, I think. We have Daffodil Day. Where what do you do? You wear a daffodil to show your solidarity and support your identity with people who have cancer. At the cricket, we have a pink day where you wear pink and it's a way of expressing your support and standing alongside women with breast cancer. I've heard of husbands who've shaved their heads when their wife had cancer as a way of standing alongside them the best they could to show their support. Jesus didn't need to be baptised, but he is standing alongside sinners, symbolically identifying himself with them. It's kind of like wearing the, the daffodil. Now, it would be one thing to shave your head and stand alongside and support someone with cancer. A great thing to do. But imagine if you could take their cancer for them. Take it on yourself. Well, of course we can't. But spiritually, that's what Jesus did at the cross. He didn't just identify with us 
in our sin at his baptism, eventually he took our sin from us in his death. He really did stand in our place. Now all that will will come later in Luke's Gospel, I know, in Luke 23. But just here this morning, at Jesus' baptism, Luke wants to show us that Jesus is identifying with sinners. He's a saviour who was truly human, traced his genealogy all the way back to Adam, and he can sympathise with us in our weakness. And as much as Jesus is repulsed by sin, as much as he's turned off by sin, as much as he hates it, yet he chose to associate with sinners because that's who he came to save. And if you read on in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is always being criticised for eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's easy to associate with nice people, isn't it? It's easy to associate with people who we like. You might have someone at work or at school who's easy to get on with, who you just like being around. It feels good to be around them. It's very easy to hang around someone like that. But what do you do when you come across someone who lies or cheats or manipulates you? What do you do when you come across someone who is just so selfish or crude, you don't like being around them? You can't trust them. It's almost impossible not to be hurt by them. It's harder to associate and hang ground with people like that. But Jesus, in his baptism, is saying that he came to associate with the worst of the worst. He came for sinners. Not just to die for them, to stand alongside them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I sin, I feel a long way from God, even as a Christian. When I mess up, I find it hard to pray. I find it easier to avoid God. When I fail, sometimes I feel like God won't want me. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you mess up, when you fail, you are exactly the kind of person who Jesus came to associate with. When you sin, when your selfishness is exposed in your time of guilt... That's the kind of person Jesus came for. Jesus didn't come for good people. He was baptised beside sinners. He chose to eat and hang around with sinners. It gave him a bad name. He came to die for sinners. Later in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What's our time of need? Our time of need is when we've failed. The time when we need God's grace is when we've sinned. Now that's the great news of today's passage for those who seek refuge in Jesus. Not only 
does Jesus stand alongside guilty people? He stands in their place. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this part of Luke's gospel this morning. Thank you after so much talk about Jesus being king over the past few weeks. Thank you that here when he's 30 years old and he's coronated as king. Thank you that he doesn't stand above us. But thank you that he humbles himself. That he's baptised as a human that he's born from the seed of Adam like us as a human, that he even lets himself be tempted like we are. Father, thank you that as a man, Jesus knows all that we go through. Thank you that he still loves us, that he came for us and that he gave his life for us. If there's people here this morning who don't yet know him as their saviour, we pray that you'd bring them to repent so that all this might be for them good news. And for the rest of us, Father, we pray that at our time of need, we might throw ourselves on your mercy and ask for forgiveness so that we might not live in guilt but in forgiveness and freedom, living with Jesus as our King. Amen.